Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Not sure what to say now. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of insecure situations, I'm feeling a bit insecure standing up here. Um, I don't usually stand on such high pulpits, but uh, I'll do my best. Um, yes, my name is Luke. Uh, I am a, a medical doctor, not to be confused with another famous Luke. Um, and for about the last 20 years, with my wife and my children, we've been in, in Muslim East Africa, uh, combining compassionate medical care uh, with evangelism and discipleship by the Lord's grace. Um, I don't need a lot of introduction to Irish culture, I think, because we have many Irish presidents, um, uh, from, from John Kennedy to Ronald Reagan to, apparently, Barack Obama. Um, so I'm really quite an expert in, in everything Irish. Um, I actually come, if you'll excuse my accent, I come from that westernmost output of Irish output outpost of Irish culture and civilization, a place called the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. Um, it is really nice to be here in Northern Ireland. Um, and I will say, and I think you know this, that Irish people are appreciated and liked the world over. Um, that's really true. Um, and, well, we make fun of you too. But, <laughs> but I think part of that, honestly, is because you do such a good job of making fun of yourselves. And I think that's appreciated all over the world. Uh, but as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, Northern Ireland in particular has been a blessing to the nations. You've punched above your weight for a long time as a missionary sending nation. You have a proud missionary heritage. And we appreciate your contributions to Africa and in AIM. Just going to read a short scripture passage. You don't need to look it up. You know this. Uh, this is Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I'm going to talk about four things tonight. I'm going to talk about Africa. I'm going to talk about Islam. I'm going to talk about going. And I'm going to talk about Jesus. So we'll start with Jesus in this particular scripture passage. I could talk a long time about it, but I won't. You've probably heard sermons on this before. Um, But just a couple points. When Jesus, what does Jesus see? He sees sheep without a shepherd. He doesn't just see hungry, sick, uneducated, poor people. He sees shepherdless sheep, whose obvious need is a shepherd. If nothing else, this tells us about the primacy of the gospel in mission. There are many ways to do mission and many types of mission, but let us never forget that the greatest need of shepherdless sheep is a shepherd. And the gospel must be central to whatever we do, whether in this country or further abroad. Second, he felt compassion on them. 
felt compassion on these shepherdless sheep. And this needs to be our primary response as well, wherever we see lost sheep, whether in Africa or whether in Northern Ireland. This is not based on humanitarian impulses for needy people, which are almost always limited, but based on the compassion and the mercy that we ourselves have experienced and known when we ourselves were among those very lost sheep. Finally, Jesus calls for a response. And that response is to pray for laborers to go into the harvest field. This is a bit surprising, his response, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. Let's talk just a little bit about Africa. I work for Africa Inland Mission, so it must be obvious that that's where my heart really is. Jesus talked about calling laborers into the harvest field. Is Africa still one of those harvest fields? There are some who say, quite reasonably in a sense, that we don't need to send missionaries to Africa anymore. Sub-Saharan Africa has been one of the great success stories of the 20th century of missionary work. And there are huge, vibrant, energetic African churches in almost all Sub-Saharan African countries. Um, Churches that may well put us to shame in terms of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not the Africa that I know. The Africa that I know, whether North Africa, whether large parts of West Africa, the islands of the Indian Ocean, the east coast of Africa, this is still almost entirely unreached and mostly Muslim. These parts of Africa are filled with unreached people groups, unreached and sometimes virtually unengaged with almost no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. By some counts, up to 50% of Africans, or 400 million people, are part of these unreached people groups. This is the Africa that I know, and it's still white for harvest, waiting for laborers. We might say that all fields are white for harvest. Some will yield more than others, but all are ready to be harvested. This is the Africa of AIM's primary vision right now. And these are the lost sheep that our Lord had such compassion for. Ask, beseech, it says in the older Bibles. Beseech the Lord of the harvest for this Africa. Let's talk a little bit about Islam, whether it's Islam in Africa or Islam in other places. Um, Throughout the history of Islam, progress of the gospel has been very slow. As a matter of fact, it's usually been negative. As, as, as Islam absorbed Christian areas of the world and Christians came into Islam rather than the other way around. Now, for the first 13 centuries of Islam, there was really very little progress. There were, certainly were individuals who came to faith in Jesus Christ, yeah, but there were hardly any big movements of people into the kingdom of God. And now, in the 21st century, this is something that we're beginning to see. Let me tell you a little bit about my own history. Um, The Western mission-sending movement to Islam began to gather steam in the 1970s and 80s in the United States and Western Europe. 
Uh, I went to the Urbana Missions Conference in 1981, and there was a man named Robert Douglas who spoke at a seminar about reaching out to Muslims. He was one of the founders of Frontiers. And someone asked him a question. How long does it take to plant a church among Muslims? Mr. Douglas said, I don't know, and as soon as we plant one, we'll tell you how long it takes. That was kind of the state of what it was in 1981. And when we went out in the early 1990s, well, things had started to change. We started to hear stories and wondered if this era was coming to an end. And when I say this era, I talk about that era when it was very common for workers to labor for 30 years and see almost no fruit or sometimes no fruit at all over those 30 years. And that had been the norm in many places in the Muslim world. This era seemed to be coming to an end. And what we saw in the island nation that we lived in, we began to see the beginning of a wave of Muslims coming to Christ. The first believer in this particular nation was in the 1970s, the first known believer in the 1970s. We saw more coming, and now there are hundreds. There's not thousands or millions, but it's a lot more than one that there were in the 1970s. We saw it in the Horn of Africa, too, where we worked. Not hundreds, but ones and twos and fives and small groups of Muslim background believers forming, particularly among my patients and particularly among the poorest of the poor. In every location that we worked, and there were four, we started out being very cautious and often fearful of what might happen if people started coming to faith and we shared our faith openly. But rather quickly, the Lord began to bring people to us in every one of these places. And not long after we we arrived in these places, I mean, not the next day, but in, in, in the succeeding years, we had more and more people. And our house was almost always full of seekers and Muslim background believers. This was the work of the Lord and what we saw him doing in these different countries. And this is not just our story These are the kind of stories we were hearing from other places, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia. We begin hearing more and more of these stories of Muslims coming to Christ. This wave that started out as a ripple seemed to be building. And now, according to some, this wave is building more. And I wonder if we are on the brink of a tsunami of Muslims coming into the kingdom of God. Can we turn on the first slide? This is a book written by a man named David Garrison. Uh, It's called A Wind in the House of Islam. And I recommend you read this book. um, Because he gives examples of movements of Muslims coming to Christ. He's a researcher, and over the last 10 or 15 years, he's traveled. He traveled a quarter of a quarter million miles around the world and interviewed Muslim background believers. Yeah. But he talks about movements, and his definition of a movement is at least a thousand baptisms or a hundred new churches. That's his definition. And some of these movements were about that size, and some were much, much larger, even into the millions. Yeah. Um, up until the up until the 1800s, there's virtually nothing, or very little, as far as movements of of, of Muslims into the kingdom of God. Yeah. In the 19 or in the 1800s, there were two significant movements: one in Indonesia, one in Ethiopia. 
And then in the 1900s, there were more. There were, there were 11 that he could document. Some of these, again, in Indonesia and Bangladesh, going up to millions of people. But significant movements in Algeria and Albania and a number of other places. Uh, and then in the 20th century, significant movements. Now, Gar- Garrison defines nine rooms in the House of Islam. Okay, and these are, these are ethnic or cultural blocks, and you can kind of see them on that map, starting all the way from Indo-Malaysia, across through, through both sides of India, in through the Persian world, Middle East, Turkmenistan, and then three in Africa. Okay, and he says in every single one of these rooms of the House of Islam, in the 21st century, there have been significant movements of Muslims to Christ. Every one of those little crosses is a movement that he could document of, again, at least a thousand baptized believers or a hundred new churches. And again, some of these, Indonesia, Bangladesh, were much, much larger going into the millions. It's the beginning of a wave. It's, It's not the beginning of a wave. It's a wave that's cresting, Lord willing, a tsunami. A Wind in the House of Islam. There's another book I'll highlight here. This is called Miraculous Movements, and it's by Jerry Truesdale. And Truesdale documents church-planting movements, particularly in African contexts, but some further abroad. And I'll just give you a couple examples of the kind of thing Truesdale talks about if you read this book. Multiple cases of entire mosques coming to faith. Thousands of ordinary men and women being used by God to achieve seemingly impossible outcomes. Tens of thousands of Muslim background Christians becoming dedicated intercessors who fast and pray for the gospel to penetrate to the next community. Muslim people groups that have never even had one church among them now have more than 50 church planted. And and in some cases, more than 100 new churches within two years of engagement. Former sheikhs, imams, and militant Islamicists making up 20% or more of the new Christian leaders leaders in Muslim regions. Two disciple-makers who refused to give up on a town that had martyred five Christians. Within a few years, there were seven churches in that community. And there are many, many more of these stories that trials the Truesdale documents. We are no longer in a mission era of still waters. Uh, The ripples have begun, and now there's a wave. At the crest of this wave, here's the statistic. In 10% of places where there's a serious church planting movement, there are second-generation churches, meaning they've pl- one church has been planted, usually by outsiders, and then that church has planted another church, second-generation churches. And that's in 10% of Muslim areas where there's been a serious effort at church planting. In 2% of these, there's a fourth-generation church. So multiple generations, the hallmark of a true church-planting movement. And there's things going on in other places as well, but this is just at the crest of this wave. It's not a tsunami yet, but one may be coming. By many indications, it is. We might ask, why has the Lord waited so long? 
to do this? Why has the Lord waited 14 centuries to do this? Well, after hearing Amy Carmichael's vision, we may better ask the question, why have we been so negligent? Yeah. I don't know the answer to either one of those questions, but I know that it's a great time to be alive, and it's a great time to be involved in outreach to Muslim people. This has to be a great encouragement for anyone interested in going and bringing the gospel to Muslims. The Lord is doing great things. Let's go and join him in this great work. There's another wave that people might bring up. This is the wave of Islamic fundamentalism. Yeah. The current wave, it, it, this is something that comes and goes over the history of Islam. And there have been multiple waves like this. This one started in the early 1900s in Egypt. been going about 100 years fueled by colonialism and by the continuing existence of the state of Israel, which is a thorn in the side of most Muslim peoples. Uh, some fear this Islamic fundamentalism, this wave, uh, as if it will somehow overcome us as well, while others believe that Islam might completely implode in on itself. Uh, but whether it implodes or whether it surges on, this is not really our concern. Our concern is the kingdom of God. And whether somebody is a fundamentalist Muslim or a nominal Christian, this is really not the issue. Yeah. There are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are inside the kingdom of God and those who are outside the kingdom of God. We are not in a fight against Muslims. We are fighting to rescue Satan's captives from the kingdom of darkness. Our fight is not according to the earthly, earthly powers. Our fight is with the evil one, the powers, principalities, and the heavenly places. There are actually two battles going on. Now, the battle that we see and the battle that we read about in the newspapers every day, yeah, that is not a battle between Christianity and Islam. Forget about that. That is a battle between fundamentalist Islamic values and Western democratic values. That's the battle. It's not Muslims versus Christians. It's fundamentalist Islam versus Western democratic values. That's one battle. The other battle is the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of darkness. Yeah. And often these battles are fought in the same place. And sometimes by the same people. But the weapons are very, very different. Our primary call is not to be involved in that cultural battle. Our primary call is to be involved in the battle for the kingdom of heaven. Our primary call is to love Muslims and witness to them of the love and power of Jesus Christ. To our response to Muslim immigrants in Europe, our fanatics in Iraq or Somalia, to go to them with the gospel. Again, whether here in Ireland or whether in Africa. In Acts 17, Paul is speaking on Mars Hill in Athens yeah, to a, I won't say a hostile crowd, but uh, not a particularly receptive crowd. And he says this, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. 
Do you get that? I don't know what you think about immigration. And that's an important issue for our societies. But just as sure as the Lord brought Paul to Athens, the Lord is the one who has brought Muslim immigrants to Europe and North America. He is the one who moves people around. Again, this is kingdoms. This is not cultural battles. The Lord is the one who moves people around. Why does he do this, says Paul? That they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. God is moving peoples around the world in order to expose them to the gospel. In any event, Islam will yield. The Roman Empire, not the Roman Empire, nor the Roman Catholic Church, nor communism could resist the gospel of Jesus Christ. And neither will Islam. The fierce persecution and opposition we see may be the thrashing of a wounded animal, or it may be the all-out effort of the evil one to defend his gains. Either way, this is to be expected. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, A wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. We expect many adversaries where there's a wide door for effective service. And we know very well that opposition, persecution, and suffering does not mean that we are losing. Philippians 1.29, Paul told the Philippians, To you has been granted not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. We need not be discouraged, but we need to press on. And whether we succeed or appear to be failing, our task is clear. The Lord himself will not fail. Let me tell you one or two short stories from our time in Africa. Uh, I was working in the Horn of Africa, and most of the people that we ended up reaching out to were very poor women, and a lot of them had HIV. Uh, in, my, in my clinic, I was treating these women. Um, they began to come to our house, and we began to feed them, and we, as we gained ability in, in the local language, began to share the gospel with them and read the scripture. And we had a couple of local believers come over and, and share the gospel with these ladies. And a lot of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of these poor Muslim HIV or otherwise sick ladies came to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, toward the end of our time there, we thought we need to baptize some of these ladies. And so we arranged one evening, we said, please, we, we prepared them for baptism and explained that to them. And we told them, please come to our house at a certain time uh, one evening. And we said, bring a change of clothes. We didn't have any nice little baptismal gowns. And I assure you, these Muslim ladies were not going to get baptized in their bathing costumes. Um, so they came. And we went. And we went to a fairly isolated beach uh, in the dark of night. I don't know what to think about baptism, but we weren't going to do this in a, front of a hostile public Muslim audience, and we baptized these ladies, and that was all fine, and then they went back, they went behind my truck to change their clothes, and then they did something very strange. These ladies, they ran back to the sea, and they took their old clothes, and they threw them in the ocean, and I said, why are you doing that? They said, our lives are new now, and we don't want those old clothes anymore. Wasn't that amazing? I didn't teach them that. They perceive something about 
dying with Christ and rising again with Christ and life being new and their old clothes were symbolic of their old lives and they didn't want them anymore. Now, a lot of these ladies have gone on to be with the Lord. But I know they'll be waiting for us when we come into, into heaven. And I know they'll be wearing these beautiful white robes of righteousness when we get there. One more very short story. In another country, some local believers had been persecuted. They'd been beaten for their faith. They had stripes across their backs from where they'd been whipped. They asked me to come to their village, and I spent the day in their village with them. It was difficult. The tension kept rising all day as I was in this village. Kept getting worse and worse. Finally, there was a big meeting in the public square and it was chaotic and, and, and the imams were leading the crowd chanting Quranic verses and it was, uh, it was a bit uh, nerve-wracking. We got to the end of the meeting. I think they just didn't want to do anything to these young men uh, in front of a, a white foreigner who was there. And so they, uh, the Muslim crowd marched off chanting. And there was a local judge there who was a Muslim but on the side of the, these believers and he said, Doctor, you need to put these men in your car and take them away because they're going to get killed if they stay here. And I turned to the young men, and there were just two or three of them, and they probably were 18 or 19 years old. I said, what do you want? They said, no, we're staying here. They said, this is our village. They said, if we leave this village, we can never come back. And so they stayed. We prayed for them, and we left. Well, they were persecuted. But after a month or two or three, that persecution died down, and then people left them alone. And that's the place in that nation today that has the biggest church and the biggest number of believers. And I believe it goes right back to those believers being willing to say, no, we're going to stay here. This is our village. We trust the Lord. There are many more stories. I could tell you stories all night, and we could call other people out there who could tell us many more stories. So the point is, God is working among Muslims. We've seen it with our own eyes. Finally, let's talk about going. I mentioned the surprising response of Jesus. After seeing these lost sheep and feeling compassion on them, he doesn't immediately command his disciples to go, but to pray. And this is my conclusion for you as well tonight. Not to lean on you to go, but to lean on you to pray, to pray for laborers for the harvest. We will pray. But look what happens in chapter 10. Immediately after this prayer, Jesus sends these same disciples out on effectively what was the first short-term trip, but it began a lifetime of ministry for the disciples. If you don't want to go, I advise you to be very careful in your prayers. Yeah. As you pray, your heart will change, your compassion will grow for the lost sheep. You will pray more, give more. Next thing you know, you may find yourself in Africa. I keep talking about Africa. There are unreached people groups in many other places in the world, including Western and Eastern Europe. Northern Ireland is always punched above her weight as far as mission sending. Who knows? Could it be in Northern Ireland, in Bangor, or in this very room? is the harvest force for the re-evangelization of Europe. Not just Islamic immigrants, but the vast swaths of Christian Europe that have turned away from the gospel. Uh, your missionary forebears from Patrick who brought the gospel 
to to Columbanus in Gaul, who set out from Bangor to evangelize Europe, to Amy Carmichael. They've shown you the way. Will you follow in their footsteps? If you would, start by beseeching the Lord of the harvest for laborers to go into his harvest field. And while you're there, ask yourself and ask the Lord, might I be one of those harvesters? We have a very short video to show you. This is from a country dear to my heart, more importantly, dear to the Lord's heart. Thank you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.